Hey up, how's it going? Everyone doing all right? It's Matt, you're listening to the Looking Sideways Action Sports Podcast, the show where I dig into the best and most interesting stories in action sports. And after a little detour for my annual festive special with my friends Tim and Gendel, normal service is resumed with this, my latest dispatch from my Portland omnibus, which was recorded in November. And my guest for this episode is a true legend of skateboarding. It's photographer Bryce Knights. Now, I know I say this a lot when I have people of Bryce's stature on the show, but where do you start with this guy? He really has been there, seen it, shot it, and opened the legendary private skate park, quite literally, as you're going to hear in this one. Now, I'm not going to give it the big CV rundown for Bryce because we go through it all in the show and he does it far more entertainingly than I'll ever be able to. But suffice to say, we're dealing with true skateboarding royalty, a stone-cold legend who's witnessed every significant period of skateboarding history and documented it with some of the most iconic pictures ever taken. Gonza Alcatraz, yeah, that was Bryce. The iconic picker Jake that ran everywhere when he passed last year, yeah, that was Bryce. The heyday of Embarcadero, that was Bryce. On and on it goes. And as somebody who grew up during the era, it's a true privilege really to hear him relate the whole lot firsthand. So yeah, I really like this one. Great to hang out with Bryce. We had a few beers afterwards when he relayed even more gold that didn't make the podcast and we just agreed that we'll have to do another one next time I'm in Portland. Even more excitingly, he's offered to do the Cardiel intros. So maybe that one will even eventually happen. You never know, eh? Big thanks to my friend Jen Shirowski for doing the intros and for Bryce for being such a legend. So here it is, me and Bryce, Wayfarer. Enjoy. Right, we're rolling. I'm with Bryce. How you doing? I'm doing good. It's yeah. a nice sunny day here in Portland. A little chilly, but um, winter is on its way, so it's this, all good. Is this like kind of rare? This like at uh, this time of year, this like beautiful blue sky. Yeah, crisp. because usually right around, I'd say around Halloween is when it gets into the damp and wet season. This is the nicest I've ever had it here. This is pretty good for November. Yeah, everyone, really can, nice. everyone, everyone's really like, what? You got the weather. You got the good weather. Yeah, yeah. so it's it's nice. And you just been in Mammoth, you were saying? Yeah, I was just down in Mammoth Mountain um, with a group of guys that are have been selected to be a part of the Sim snowboarding brand, um, which is going to be coming out with some product this year and doing some tours and going to resurrect it it's being resurrected yeah Do you know what they've have they licensed it then to somebody else yeah it's, it's licensed through a group in uh, japan okay and um they have some riders over there um tadashi fuse yeah yeah he's a big name rider he's been around for years yeah he's and, a legend uh, yeah shuhei uh, sato who's also well known in the hokkaido area yeah he was more of a, a freestyler but now he's a big mountain rider yeah so. yeah because they got some good minds over there yeah Hokkaido is amazing. Yeah, I'm going in January actually for three weeks. It's always good. Pre- might, might see you over there. Are you going to be there? Yeah. Ah, right. Yeah. I've not been for 15 years. Yeah. No, I'm not. Likewise. Pre- yeah, I'm pretty pretty stoked. Yeah. So how was Mammoth? Is that a good is that a good time? It's good. Um, it's definitely a growing community. There's a lot of uh, prep going on for the winter season. A lot of sidewalks being constructed. And yeah, I hadn't been in about 10 years, but the skate park is amazing there. Yeah. Um, the Vulcan Brothers skate park. Yeah. And uh, the mountain's still there doing a hell of a business. I, we, we went on opening day. There were three runs, all blown snow. 
rest of the mountain was bare. Yeah. And 4,000 people. Yeah. It's busy, right? Very busy I was for there, opening day. I was there end of March and it was, I mean, it's just yeah. rammed. So basically. we had new boards and we were trying to link some turns and get some speed going. And it's just, it's like going through moving slalom cones, you know? So how are the boards? They're good. They're yeah. really good. Yeah, they're made by Never Never Summer. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a US factory, right? US factory in Colorado. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So. Okay. So it's kind of timely because we're recording this just to talk about Tom Sims briefly because, you know, we're yeah. recording this the day after we found out about Jake Burton, right? Yeah, which it's is, a really sad day, man. Which is uh, obviously kind of still processing that a little bit, really. Yeah, it's one of the founders, both him and Tom. Those are the the two guys exactly that really two, put it down the two big influences east coast versus west coast yeah <laughs> no it's a sad day for sure mm. see because you're you've done a lot of stuff in the snow arena i have I've, i don't really showcase a lot of that but yeah. i've been around since uh 82 or 83 i've been snowboarding yeah um Cause you, cause I, you, I went to work for thrasher and of course that's a skateboarding publication so yeah i still continued to snowboard as it developed but i I really cut my teeth in skateboarding. Yeah, of course. Yeah. 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 Well, the first thing I want to ask you is about 43. Because <laughs> I've noticed there's a significance, right, to, to that number for you. There is. Studio 43. Yep. Um, crops up a lot, right? It does. Over the years. And you, you seem to leave like little clues here and yeah. there with like the work well, that it, you do. And it's, it's been put out there in several magazines and interviews and... The number 43 uh, goes back to the mid-80s, I would say. Um, a buddy of ours named Rob, we call him Orb. Everybody might know him by the guy that sells maps to the skaters' homes right. in, in Animal Chin. Sure. So that's Orb. Right. Orb went to a grocery store, small grocery store in San Francisco, and he went to buy a banana. And a Middle Eastern guy behind the counter um, kind of got upset at him because... The banana was 43 cents and he only had 40 cents. So he put down 40 cents and the guy's like, no, 43, 43. <laughs> and he kept saying 43. And that number stuck in Rob's mind. And sure enough, the number 43 just kept popping up on, you know, time of the day or a, yeah. a grocery receipt. He started to see it. So he just was more cognizant of the number 43. Yeah. It became coincidental. And he shared that with me and Tommy Guerrero and all of our friends. And we had this 43 thing going. It yeah, just, yeah. It just became popularized, I guess, through us being hyped about it. Yeah. And sure enough, then we told, you know, our other peers in skateboarding and Neil Blender and Gons, everybody knew about it. Yeah, and sure. Some were stoked. Some got bummed. <laughs> Neil was like, damn it. If I didn't know that number, man, I, it's just bothersome. I just see it everywhere. Right. So, yeah. So you kind of created so it. So it's, it's not good luck or bad luck. It's just there. Well, those things kind of take on an increased significance over time, don't they, as well? Yeah. You know, if you've got something that's part that you've grown up with, like a group of friends, and then you yeah. start, it's almost like you kind of um, build it as it goes, right? Yeah. And like, uh, I think there's a coffee in Europe. It was blend 43. Yeah. Where's the other blends? There were none. It's just 43. Right. So. See, and so obviously Studio 43, that was a conscious thing. Yeah, that was conscious. I named, yeah. named Studio 43, 43, but it was kind of because of Studio 54, which was a disco dance club in yeah, the 70s New in York. New York. Yeah, like the... So I thought, oh, Studio 54, I'm going to do Studio 43. Yeah, okay. For, for the skate ramps. Yeah. So obviously that was in San Francisco. Yes. Your Bay Area, like born and bred. 
and very associated with San Francisco skateboarding. So yeah, native we, San Francisco. Should, should we start there maybe? So sure, when, sure. When did you first discover skateboarding then? Like when? My first taste of skateboarding was um, the summer of 1975. I was um, down in Ventura, California, which is south of Santa Barbara. Um, had some cousins that lived down there and um, I would go down every summer and hang out with them for a few months. My mom would put me on the train and I'd take the train down by myself. And uh, summer of 75, they had skateboards. And this is when the urethane wheel had first come out to the market. Yeah. Cadillac wheels, um, loose ball bearings, by the way. So um, I rode one of their boards and I was immediately hooked. I really liked the feeling of gliding across the parking lot down the street. And um, we went to the surf shop and I purchased the skateboard. Right. So that was a Bane fiberglass, 24-inch fiberglass uh, flat board with Chicago trucks and Cadillac wheels. Right. And I brought that back to San Francisco with me after um, riding. I think I was down there for a month that summer. I came back to San Francisco, and um, I was just skating, like, parking garages and um, tennis courts, some street spots, but I didn't know anybody. I was kind of on my own for the first few months. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask, really. Like, yeah. what was the scene like back then? It was, there was just barely anything going on. I think there was one skate shop, uh, Skateboard City, which right. had opened up, <clears throat> which later on became Skates on Hate. So anyway, Skateboard City, um, I'd heard about, and I went there, and then I met some other like-minded friends. Sure. Who became friends, and that was uh, Tony Guerrero, Tommy Guerrero, Joe Fong, Aaron Lasnover, um, Monty Smith, Michael Brown. There were so many that I met. And then there was a, a new shop that was starting out at the bottom of 9th Avenue at Judah. It was called California Precision Skateboards. And they were strategically placed in the right spot right they were at the bottom of ninth avenue which was very popular amongst skateboarders and for 10 cents at the time you could jump on the bus across the street at the bus stop and get a transfer and the transfer was good for like three hours so for 10 cents you would use the bus like a chairlift and go <laughs> all the way up the hill and ride all the way down on the driveways and the streets and just wait at the bottom with a, a Coke or some water and get the next bus and go right back up. And that would entertain us days on end. Right. And the shop was right across the street. Right. It's so the right place. It was, it was brilliant. And yeah. that's where you really met a lot of guys. So the scene started to come together. Yeah. So to I'd grow. say by the next year, 76, it was on. Right. There were like three skate shops in San Francisco and we were building ramps in backyards and just making it happen and, yeah yeah and following what skateboarder magazine was doing and, and showing us to do yeah or how to follow i guess yeah yeah sure because that's kind of the first <clears throat> almost explosion in the industry it right? was the first explosion yeah yeah so you're a, a, a good a good point to that with the urethane wheel yeah of course there were the 60s but yeah that that's what I changed can't speak it. on that because i wasn't there yeah yeah sure <laughs> yeah so that was you that was you hooked basically on skateboarding that was that was that. yeah i was all in yeah i haven't stopped since that I, was that I was your life used to skateboard i still do it yeah of course yeah, yeah. so how because you obviously you're well known as a photographer but you know you were a pro skater before that so how did that develop well actually they ran concurrently um let's fast forward to 
after I got out of high school, Kevin Thatcher saw some photos that I had in my backpack at a skate shop called Rainbow Skates. And he was the founding, uh, co-founder, one of the co-founders of Thrasher magazine. And Thrasher was really new. It was like, I think a year out, maybe a year and a half. It's and like what, 83, 84? Well, it started in 80, 81. Okay. It's a little bit earlier than yeah, I thought. So I'd say like 83, I met Kevin Thatcher. Right. And he saw some of my photographs and, and my camera, I was a hobbyist. I used to shoot photos wherever me and my friends would go, I would just shoot photos. So you'd always shot as well, yeah. like from the start. So that, yeah. just a quick question then on that, like had your interest in photography grown with skateboarding or did it predate skateboarding? It predated skateboarding a bit. And where did that come my from? My father was a photographer, not a professional, but a hobbyist. We had photos all over the house. He had a dark room. Right. So I knew how to make prints. So you, had the, you had the kit and you had the access and you yeah, could kind of... Yeah, so I, I had my, my feet wet in, in photography for a couple of years. Right. And um, and it sounds like you were quite an avid consumer. Yeah, and I never took photography classes. Um, it was all self-taught, looking at magazines and reading books. So when I met Kevin, I showed him some of my prints and he really liked them. Right. And he, and he published one, asked if he could publish one of them in the magazine. And it was my friend Camden Scott hanging upside down on the the bars on a BART train. Right. Subway train. Yeah, yeah. And that was my first published photo in Thrasher. A couple months go by and he says, hey, the magazine's really doing well. We're growing. We could really use someone like you on board to kind of learn and grow with us. Right. So I left my barbecue job, which I was slaving over a pit of ribs and chicken and <laughs> hot links and all that. It was a greasy job. But, yeah, um, yeah. So I went to work for Thrasher. Okay, so I didn't realize that. So it was concurrent then with the while you were skating as well. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Okay. Yeah. So I was actually the first um, paid intern at Thrasher. Right. So I started out in the dark room, um, developing film and generating prints for production, and then learning paste up and layout, um, silk screening T-shirts, mopping and sweeping floors, emptying trash, and then driving up to the printer, which was about an hour and a half north of San Francisco, which I would rent a U-Haul truck and go pick up the magazines every month and bring them back to the office and ship them out. Amazing. So I was doing a lot of things. Yeah, what an apprenticeship. Learning. Yeah, it was totally, it was paid, but yeah. I was the low low guy on the totem pole for sure. Yeah. yeah. So what, what was the scene like around that then? You know, Thrasher, 84, 85? Um, we were in the Naval Shipyard, which was a decommissioned shipyard in San Francisco called yeah. Hunter's Point. Sure. Um, and we were in a, a building that uh, was pretty tattered and run down, but you make do with what you have. And then the reason we were there is because the foundry for uh, independent trucks was across the street. And that's right. where they would pour all the, the trucks. And uh, okay. that's where the production was there. So Fausto Vitello and his um, partners, Eric Swenson, they ran the production on the truck company, but also had their hands involved with uh, Thrasher magazine. Right. And the reason for Thrasher to start was the previous magazines had pretty much gone out of business because of the, you know skateboarding's first wave had fallen away yeah which is a cat like for different reasons yeah what do you put that down to then? i would say um they hyped too much of the skate park right uh movement 
and all those parks were all private. They weren't public. Right. And there were insurance problems and inferior designs. So, so people couldn't really access. Yeah, people couldn't access those parks. Uh, street skating hadn't even come around. Yeah. So I think with Thrasher coming around and you know pretty much pr- promoting street skating, yeah. it was accessible to everybody. It gave it the boost that yeah. it needed. Yeah. Right. So what skaters were you seeing as the influences at that time then? Apart from, obviously. Well, obviously, Tommy. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Later on was Mark Gonzalez, Nadis Kalpas. Yeah. Jim Thebow, Mickey Reyes. I mean, all those guys were peers. And you were documenting all this? Yeah, I was shooting a lot of photography. Yeah. And working at the magazine and skating in comps for myself as well and backyard ramps. So I was just immersed in it. Yeah. And if there was a new trick happening, I knew about it or I was shooting it. Um, and it wasn't back then when you did a photo shoot, it wasn't like, this is exclusive to me. You know, it'd be a bunch of us that had cameras just shooting something. It was right. Uh, the first front side board slide on a rail, for example, was done by Julian stranger. It was part of, uh, our video that we put together with Mac dog, Mike McIntyre. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, called sick boys. Yeah. That was his first film. Yeah. Super eight. Uh, so anyway, Julian did the first frontside board slide on, down a handrail. I shot a sequence, a couple stills. Tobin Yellen shot some photos. Greg Smith uh, shot some photos. It wasn't like exclusive. Yeah. It's just how it just worked. It was know? more of like a collaborative community thing. Yeah, right? everybody was just stoked and having fun. Yeah. Know? So that's how it was. Um, so, and Sick Boys predates Hocus Pocus, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So yeah. was that his first? So real quick on Mac Dog. Um, yeah, he was from Marin County, which is just north of San Francisco across the Golden Gate Bridge. And he was uh, a surfer, skater, kind of stoner guy and asked yeah. if he could come around and film with us. Right. I said, sure, no problem. So I kept in contact with him, as did Tommy and Mickey. And usually we'd have sessions on the weekends and he'd, he'd pull up in his VW bus and right. hang out with us and just film. But... Never once did he really say, we're working on a film or a video or anything. He just compiled a bunch of uh, photos of us and, and video. Yeah. Or, excuse me, not video, film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so it wasn't like, we're doing a project. It yeah, was just... and then I think maybe six months or so went by, and then he decided, oh, I should put out a video. Yeah, right. So that's how it came about. And so if you watch Sick Boys, you'll see it's all about spots and locations. Yeah, it's much until more the of, very end, you have Nadis Kalpas has a part. Yeah, because he, that was towards the end of the filming where he spent a lot of time with Nadis in Los Angeles, and it, it made sense to give Nadis the part. Yeah, he has the only kind of like section. Yeah, I that's guess, when a part it? was really a part. Yeah, you always hear video part now. It's like, what's it a part of? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, big big difference. So Nadis had the first part. Yeah. <laughs> So, and then that was the start of Matt Dog's kind of career as we know it now, right? So through Sick Boys, he got the attention of Mike Ternaski and, and Tony Magnuson. Yeah. And H Street was just starting up in like 1988. So he did Hocus Pocus and Shackle Me Not. Yeah. I mean, it's not a bad start to the CV, yeah. is it really? And then after <laughs> those two H Street video, or videos, um, Mac Dog went into... The snowboard world. And, and was was Noah Slaznak the kind of connection there then? Noah used to skate with us. Yeah, exactly. Fact, he's like, Noah won a... I threw a contest, The Dish, which was a skate park in San Francisco. It was public, but it was just a like an ashtray with a croissant in the middle yeah. that you could jump off. 
So I threw a contest up there in 1985, and Noah Selaznik showed up, another kid from North Marin, and uh, killed it, and he won. Yeah, because he's got a part in Hocus Pocus, right? Like, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, because yeah. I remember it was kind of, because obviously killed it on a snowboard as well. Yeah. Y- you know, oh, yeah. And, and really him and... Aaron Vincent. And Chris Roach as well. Like Roach. Really, yeah. the people that, when you look back now, actually put snowboarding on the right skate influence path. Definitely. By taking that style yeah. that they obviously from being skateboarders right and then taking it to that scene and like a really critical point in snowboarding yeah. development really right cardiel as well cardiel yeah, yeah of course because he but, had the riders in the storm yeah section but didn't he? cardiel stuck more with skating and then Slaznik went with mac dog and they started their own careers in snowboarding and yeah really, really built that industry up and Slaznik was like you know going to alaska wasn't he and doing yes, all those crazy crazy super spines and exactly. all that stuff yeah, yeah. Yeah, you kind of forget but about he, Mac. But he started out as a, a Bay Area skateboard kid. Yeah, he's a vertex guy, wasn't he? Yeah. Like, yeah. yeah. So this is when presumably the San Francisco scene that you're like, you know, is, is blowing up, right? Yeah. Like in mid-80s as well. Oh, yeah. And when does Embarcadero come in then as like the spot? I'd say Embarcadero happened um, 83, 84 for us, the first generation skateboarders. It was myself and... Mike Archimedes, Tommy Guerrero, Julian Stranger, Jim Thibault. Um, all of us, we discovered a lot of the first spots in downtown San Francisco and Fort Miley and all those spots. Um, as we were starting to get older, the younger generation was coming in. And um, I noticed that out in Golden Gate Park every Sunday, we used to bring a jump ramp out and uh, spend the Sunday out there just doing tricks off a jump ramp to yeah. flat to flat and it's just that's why my knees hurt <laughs> <laughs> yeah I'll do but it. um that's where i first noticed henry sanchez and mike carroll and i mean they must have been young kids right yeah at that point these guys were like 12 yeah, yeah. they were younger because even like yeah when you look back now like even like the sort of plan b heyday like um, yeah but there's a big difference between you know a 13 year old and a 16 year old yeah that is a huge difference difference. yeah i mean they're kids right right yeah right so that was that was when you first saw yeah and so then so then mike carroll and and uh james kelch and all these guys started hanging out down at embarcadero right and they had their own scene their own peer group and we were the older guys yeah and they kind of gave us shit here and there but we all got along yeah it wasn't like horrible but um, they really focused and spent all of their time down at EMB doing all the technical street tricks. Yeah, is it, so that's when that started to come in, basically. Yeah, they really had a lot of influence on what was going on with street skating, um, cutting Caballero vans down to half cabs, yeah. like style and and technical uh, ability on skateboards. Yeah. yeah, and obviously you're chewing it all at the same time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So also later on in 88, I started Studio 43 Yeah, because we didn't have any transitions. Everything was street. Right. So a lot of us wanted a spot where we could skate any time in the day and have a vert ramp and a mini ramp. So how did you finance that? Did you get people, did you get kind of like companies to get involved? Exactly. Yeah. It was a five-year lease and then um, I got Fausto involved and interested, so... He had his hands in all kinds of different businesses, including Thrasher and Deluxe Think Skateboards. So um, Deluxe paid a portion of the rent, as did um, Think. 
thrasher and then i would just carry the balance which is i think a hundred bucks a month for myself and and the insurance so how did you vet it like who could skate that's a good question because you know that you've already named about like so many legendary skateboarders it, it was a really hard to be in that position because and it's the politics of that spot right? yeah of like yeah. any spot you know you need to like make sure even you know the same thing in any any kind of like right. carefully guarded spot in the world so each of these contributing companies had a key for their their team or team managers and um then there'd be the randoms that would just show up yeah because it's one of them in it, but everyone's soon as they everybody's heard. a friend of a friend and yeah all of a sudden this guy knocks on the door and like who are you with salman aga right I'm like no like, I, don't, I don't know you like i denied <laughs> him you know and same with dan drahobel he was actually skating my ramp i'm like who are you get the fuck out of here like that's hilarious. It was kind of crazy how yeah. you <laughs> had to regulate. Right. But then, you know, as you meet everybody, every, everybody's cool. Just you have to be the policeman and it wasn't fun. You know? Yeah. It's a kind of thankless role, right? Yeah. Like running the rent. So it, it became it. this thing like if you got to skate Studio 43, wow, you're really privileged kind of. Like it was a special thing for a lot of guys. Any sessions stand out from that time? Oh, man. There's I mean, so sure there's too many, right? There's but. so many. I mean anybody that came and visited San Francisco or the magazine would stop through. Um, you know, Omar Hassan, Christian Hassoy, Chad Vaught, Danny Way, uh, Mark Gonzalez, Jason Lee, Chris yeah. Pastris. I mean, it goes on and on and the on. And I, and I have high eight videotapes of all this stuff and I need to put it out. Really? I need to show what, what happened there. And Oh man, you should I, do I should just do it. You should definitely do I'm that. I'm holding on to some video gold. So who do you think when you look back, who who do you think skated the best? Like had the had the handle on it. Wade Spire. Yeah, definitely. He skated that whole place. Noah Salaznik skated that vert ramp like no other. Yeah. There's so many. I mean, everybody ripped that thing. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's like got Nadis Kalpas. Here's a funny story. Um, when <clears throat> I had to pull all the ramps out and the lease was up and we were we were out of there, um, it took me three days to tear down the mini ramp. Can any help? I had two people helping me. I was going to say, yeah. but was everyone but, beating but a lot down of pe- the door? A lot of people did <laughs> did leave and not help, but there, I had enough help. Yeah, suddenly, suddenly So I, I pull up the flat bottom of the mini ramp, and there's all these tube socks with duct tape around them. It turns out those socks were all Nadas Kalpas's socks because he didn't ha- wear ankle braces. Right. So his ankles were fucked. Right. He duct taped his ankles, and then after the session, he cut them off and throw them under the ramp. That's hilarious. <laughs> so I had all these duct tape tube socks that were notices right <laughs> it's pretty funny so why did you bring it to an end like what was it just the right time i think uh it was the right time uh vert skating was dying yeah and basically there was no support from the other contributors so thrasher right. and deluxe and and those teams weren't skating enough vert so the vert was done mini ramp i could have held on to but then i would have had to find a sublease for the other portion of the warehouse and right writing was on the wall it was just over it so. just came became a bit yeah, more complicated so, so it was around for five years yeah and that's where the hell ride started yeah with jake phelps and, yeah, and yeah. the crew we used to have barbecues every friday night at at studio 43 ah, right. so that's raging that, sessions that's where that started yeah right hell ride started at studio 43 okay right yeah. 
and then so obviously you've kind of mentioned that Vert's getting started to die so where are we at now like what late 80s kind of thing yeah 92 91 92. 91 92 yeah. and then this is obviously the time when Embarcadero even more becomes this like absolute yes. epicenter of, of yep. and like ridiculously influential part of the scene and you know nowadays everyone calls it like the dark ages like the tiny wheels like you know that that whole yeah big pants small wheels yeah, yeah like which again was from for a kid in England was like you know like that's where you wanted to go and that's right. that's where the that's where it all came from that was the fashion that's kind of like my area like yeah. when I got into skateboarding basically yep how did that look to you when you saw that I thought it was cool I mean all the technical tricks that were going down um the one thing I didn't get because I always rode or skated the hills of San Francisco yeah all over I mean that was how you got around the city you'd walk up a hill and skate down three like you just you just knew the way to get around the city and and you would never walk down a hill you'd always roll down a hill yeah so i'd see these kids walking down hills with their skateboards in their arms right like I, i'd ask these kids like why are you walking down the hill with with your skateboards well our wheels are so small we're in a flat spot them yeah i'm like ride bigger wheels yeah they I mean, were, I, I remember kids riding, riding like, like 38 miles. Correct. <laughs> Bearing covers. <laughs> and, you know, you would literally, and because obviously then like you got like no slides, like super fashionable. So you like good session. Right. You, you, your wheels are fought basically. And they weren't functional. No. Not, not for all. all, not for ATV all terrain, all terrain skating. Not no. at all. And then you got like the kind of focus board thing coming in, you know, yeah. like, kind of, you know, for kids making it even more inaccessible really. Right. Like, because it's just making it harder, right? Right. You know. So. But massively progressive at the same time. Like, the level yeah. of skateboarding. L- luckily, that <clears throat> small wheel, big pant thing only lasted, like, two summers. Yeah. That was it. Right. And by 94, we were out of that. Yeah. It was coming back. Yeah. And the guys from Philadelphia, um, Matt Reason and Ricky Oyola, those guys came out to San Francisco and were riding, like, um, I think 55s or 54 millimeter wheels. Yeah. And they were just charging yeah, all yeah. over the hills and big, powerful tricks. Yeah. Technical street skating, just but, but more speed. And Chris Sen helped do that as well. Yeah, who's yeah. obviously someone you're associated yeah. with yeah. a lot. Yeah, but to see the guys from Philadelphia come to San Francisco at that time was pretty yeah, pretty special. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So is, where are we at with your kind of your own skateboarding career at this point? That's a good point. Um, so at that point... In 92, actually 91, Schmidt Sticks, who I was professional for, um, and Paul Schmidt, they were um, a licensee under Vision Sports, Yeah, along with Sims. And Paul Schmidt and uh, Brad Dorfman weren't getting along very well. Right. So, unbeknownst to me, uh, Steve Douglas... Andy Howell and Paul Schmidt were working on a, a company yeah, New all deal. the while. And New Deal happened, and I wasn't a part of that. Right. And I totally, I, I totally get it and understand it, but I didn't know anything about it. Right. And so Paul told me that Schmidt is gone as of December, and they're going to do the New Deal. Right. So um, that was 1990. Yeah. So um, I was a little bombed at first just because I wasn't clued in. You don't like to have things held from you, but I totally understood. So uh, I was resigned to just not be a pro skateboarder anymore. That right. was fine. I was really busy at the magazine. I was traveling, shooting photos, just um, working on my career in, in production. 
And uh, at that time, Dogtown Skateboards, Jim Muir, uh, had moved up from Venice Beach up to San Francisco, and he wanted to start Dogtown again. This was the second or the third iteration yep. of Dogtown. So he had John Cardiel, Karma Toshev, Wade Spire, J.J. Rogers. It's pretty heavy hitting. It was a heavy hitting <laughs> amateur team, but they had no yeah. pros. Right. So Fausto was helping Jim out, and Jim and Fausto asked me to be a pro on Dogtown for a few months as they started building it back up. Right. And I said, oh, that's fine, I'll do it, but um, I'm not going to do any competitions or anything. I just, I'm, being, I'm done with that. So I was on Dogtown for a year and a half, and we put out a video, had a fun time with traveling with those guys, and, yeah. and had a good time. And, uh, but you kind of recognized it was it Yeah, was it was over. How old were so you at this point? Um, 31. Okay. Yeah. Right. Yeah, 31. Um, and so then that early that spring, Paul Schmidt sent me a check, and I was not expecting it. Right. And he said, this is what your royalties would have been for your boards at Schmidtsticks. Sorry about the confusion. That's pretty generous. Totally. Yeah. That's a classy move. Yeah. He, he gave me a couple thousand bucks. And I was like, man, that's a straight up, that's a straight up move on a, a real friend. Yeah. You know? That is it. Cause so. he, he didn't need to do that. No, he didn't. Yeah. He didn't. That's basically so, him. Like much respect to Paul. <laughs> so how obviously new deal nostalgia yep. central right 30 now. 30 years. Right? Yeah. yeah. So how, how, how'd you look at it now? That's oh, amazing. Yeah. I mean, a lot of, modern moves in skateboarding came out of new deal yeah because you know the story is you basically had, that they broke the kind of you know stranglehold that the big companies had correct and like the rider-led thing started from there did, right. did it feel like that at the time yeah it did yeah it was it was really cool i like the video the art direction with andy and andy's progressive skateboarding uh, ed templeton cannot be denied i mean i, I mean the, te- the team was a stellar team this team was legendary right? amazing yeah even, even the vert skaters like andrew morrison yeah yeah i mean you almost New, forgot about New Zealand. him yeah. yeah so they did a great job it was it was pretty cool how they kept it secret and they pulled it off without you know paul going to court over schmidt sticks yeah yeah so yeah good and what change did it did you see in skateboarding from it as it as it started because you know we're like kind of early to mid 90s i I think it definitely led to the skater owned skate company yeah you know um graphics all the way up to management to producing your own videos like it was all on on themselves to do it yeah because i spoke to steve in may and i kind of almost forgot about 411 as well which starts around the same time right? yeah and then 411 came you know Probably by '94, they were starting to put out 411. Yeah, so things like media starting to change, and you right. know, you've got different avenues. And right, how did that affect you at the magazines? Well, New Deal was an advertiser, so we definitely catered to them, and yeah, and did some good st- good things with with the brand. But video was moving in, like you said. So, yeah, um, we started doing Thrasher skate video. Yeah, and that was every two months, and. Around the same time, 411 launched their first issue. So we were kind of all of a sudden in competition with New Deal and yeah. Paul and all that. 411 versus Thrasher Magazine video. But ours was, wasn't was really so departmentalized. It was just a casual kind of uh, sure. video. Just kind of flowed from chapter to chapter. Um, but um, we we just wanted to show all types of skateboarding and kind of from the raw side of things. Yeah. 
So we had, you know, pool skating and downhill skating and um, technical street, um, a good soundtrack, good music from Fat Records was one of our our sponsors or yeah because you, you you've always had a we had an a good ad, library you, music, you've had an eye on the music right as yeah. well you know something that it, it seems to me outside that you're pretty right. you know passionate and considered right. about this so so it did well and at the yeah. same time i was also the photo editor for yes. the magazine so i was juggling photo editing video production and skateboarding yeah i was doing a lot yeah yeah, yeah. and who's on the who's on the team at thrasher at this point um, at that time, it was myself. Jake Phelps had just come upstairs to editorial. He was in the shipping department with Danny Sargent. Right. Um, Brian Brannon was our art director. He was um, from JFA, yep. Jody Foster's Army. Um, who else did we have? Oh, Kevin Thatcher was there. He was, he was transitioning out of being the editor and going to publishing, um, bringing Jake in more and more. So... Um, yeah, it was it was moving. Skateboarding was emerging out of the dark, slow, small wheel stage into powerful skateboarding. And vert transition skating and even parks were starting to be built. In yeah, mid nineties. You know. start getting the the revival, if you like. Yeah. yeah, yeah. How how that must have been a good change for you as a photographer, right? It was because one of the obviously the things you look back about that era, that early nineties era, was like the, a, a lack of consistency. Let's say. Yep. You know, with that kind of drive for ever more complicated variations, but without almost like the the collective ability to kind of well, make, yeah, the, the early stick, the you know? early years of um, technical street skating, the EMB era, wasn't that consistent. Yeah, exactly. These guys were trying a hard trick, like a inside heel flip to lip slide, and it would take them like a hundred tries to make it once and you're shooting film but as right? long as they had it on video and i'm shooting film i'm wasting film yeah fausto's pissed he's like what are you guys doing I'm like can't afford this that's why that's kind of why i asked the question so really. we started doing video capture and printing it in the magazine it was low resolution it was fucking horrid yeah because rad i hated it. rad started doing that as well yeah like and it, it so it was that literally grabbing the the frames correct yeah and it was really low res wasn't low it? res yeah it and you, small frame sequences that looked horrible but i guess it was like a necessary but thing i right? think skateboarding had to go that way to figure it out and yeah say fuck this looks horrible let's get back to, to quality product to consistency <laughs> yeah exactly yeah and like and and <laughs> style yeah because there's a lot of bad style around yeah, it was that. really slow and just it was not appealing no it really wasn't yeah yeah so you're on the road a lot, I guess, as well at this point, you know, yeah. as, like working with the magazine and just like what what kind of when you look back at because obviously with, with as a photographer, you're making partnerships with, with skaters and groups of skaters to do yep. shoots. And like what, yep. what 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 do you you know, this period, what, what do you look back on now? And remember, I was shooting a lot with the Think and Adrenaline teams. So yep. I, I shot a lot with um, Chris Sen and Jaya Bondarov and Wade Spire, Matt Pales. That whole crew, those were guys, those were the guys that I'd hung out with. And, yeah. And um, I'd go to Europe with those guys every summer. And we went to Marseille the first time when it was just built. Yeah. Went with uh, Wade Spire and Tim Brausch. Ah, that must have been a, a sight. Chris Sen. It was, this is amazing. Yeah. Phil Shaw, rest in peace. Yeah. Yeah. It was, uh, just amazing skateboarders to hang out with. And I was the, like the older brother, you know. 
So I'm 10 years older than those guys. Yeah, sure. But we all got along. And that's the cool thing about skateboarding. There's no real age barrier. No. You know? So, um, no, we'd have a blast just looking forward to U.S. tours and the first of, uh, you know, the European tours that we would do. Yeah. Yeah, so it was fun. Yeah, you did some time in the U.K., you were saying, didn't you? Yeah, I did. Yeah. yeah. It's a Northampton contest. Yeah, there. yeah, we should talk about that. Cause you, first you time were, I saw Jeff Rowley. And, and you and were at the Penny. Penny. The Penny yeah. Comp. Yeah. So how was that? It was amazing just to see the energy and excitement in a shitty old warehouse in Northampton. Yeah, know? Northampton as well. It's not exactly like the glamour spot. You right. know what I mean? It's like... But yeah. it was cool. You had all Such these guys, all these Americans and um, a couple of Brazilians and Europeans all getting together and just having a fucking great jam. And Tom was just putting it down. And that was the first time you saw him skate? Oh, it was amazing. Right. And he he had, knew. I think he had a bowl cut, something like that. Yeah, he did. He had that this, like, <laughs> the classic gray sweatshirt, sort of bowl cut yeah. era, isn't it? You know? Yep. Yeah. And you see, so you kind of recognized it. Totally. When you saw it. No, he, he had that flick and catch. Yeah. Like it was just perfect yeah i don't know call, call it tom you was kind of kind of stony and like this is cognizant but not this is arms isn't it though yeah this is like you know the lack the, of movement the cult of tom yeah <laughs> best thing on instagram <laughs> definitely it is so and one question i've got and we were actually talking about this on the when we were driving today you know there's like so many classic shots over the year over the years you know there's like guns at Alcatraz you know like you've talked about them loads yeah. um Jamie Thomas Guns Gap like you know like all these all these like classic shots like it was, it was Owen's question actually like do, do you know when you've took took that shot you know if you look back at all these all these classic <coughs> captures of skateboarding history do you know when, at the time that, that it's that significant or is it is it a bit more kind of happenstance than that? Uh, definitely more happenstance back then. Yeah. For one, you're not looking immediately back at the LCD on your camera. <laughs> of course. So you're just hoping that the photo came out, but you know you, you've got the shot and you've exposed it properly, but you still don't know that it's going to make it safely back to your hands because I've had stuff I've submitted to the lab and hasn't come back. Right. So it's scary. So you've had things that you kind of thought... You go to Europe with... <clears throat> 35 rolls of color and 35 rolls of black and white and you come back and you expose everything and you come back and submit it to the film processor and you pick it up and you're short one roll right or something gets cut or yeah it's just there's a lot of hazards so right it's happened to me it's not good yeah but um when you're in the moment shooting and you know how to expose film properly it's it's magic yeah it's really cool to open up that box and look at the slide on a on a light box and go wow do you, do you miss that i do yeah it slows down the process when you're shooting a photo on film it's like you're thinking through your shots yeah exactly it's a bit With, more bit more i'm not going to use the word art because that's the wrong word to use but it's, it's more of a process you're more, right? you're more cognizant about what you're yeah. framing and you're definitely looking through your lens and you know each shot counts yeah that's how i see it sure so with digital it's a little more spray three image burst whatever pick the best shot i don't know like, has it changed the way you shoot it has right yeah not portraits but action definitely i i find myself which i try to correct myself but i find myself shooting uh bursts right 
instead of single frame because you single can. shot yeah right so i have it on you know high high uh sequence and i get like three frame burst out of each action shot right and that's not the right way to do it sure you should shoot one shot how often you shoot in film I just shot last week in Mammoth some film. You shot uh, film? Yeah, I shot some <clears throat> portraits, which was really nice to pull the Hasselblad out and shoot some medium format. But um, I shoot 35 millimeter on my Leica. Um, I just carry it around with me and shoot that quite a bit. So I'm always shooting film, but not a lot of it. It's yeah. more for personal um, projects and things like that. Yeah. But I don't. No, none of my clients demand film. Nobody wants film. It takes too long. It's a luxury thing, though, yeah, isn't it? It is. You know, and it's it's cost prohibitive. It's yeah. really it's expensive. So you mentioned clients because obviously, I guess you know you you do a lot of work with brands and companies. Is yeah. this if we take it back to this kind of timeline we're following mid nineties? Is this when that starts to come in? Yeah, I would shoot more and more ads for the magazine. Yeah. Um, uh, so someone like Volcom would want a photo or yeah. Quicksilver, usually the clothing companies, some, some of the board companies, um, back then. Yeah. So I, I, aside from my work at Thrasher, I also shoot photos for advertisements. Yeah. And were they bringing you in on a marketing level as well? Cause you know, obviously this is a, a big body of knowledge and, and understanding about the culture. You, you mean the brands? Yeah. You know, like that, cause that's, it, Get going full industry and help him with campaigns and you know is that happening as well yeah but it was after i left thrasher magazine that right. was then i was doing campaigns and things when was that when did you leave i left in 96 what what was why did you leave mm, i just wasn't getting along with jake truthfully yeah and i had run my course there and he was he definitely had more influence over um fausto and and the higher ups and things like that he, he he just became hard to deal with. Right. And, and he would go on a trip with his crew to Australia with a point and shoot camera and come back with horrible photos and just frustrated me because I was really into my craft and, and trying to produce the best photos for the magazine. Sure. And I was running the video magazine, as I mentioned. So I got frustrated. I was doing a lot of work and I felt Jake wasn't holding his weight. Right. In that regard. So I, I don't know. Writing was on the wall. I just had to move on. Right. And it was like Jake and I were friends, but we just couldn't work together at that point. Yeah. You did. I think I remember seeing a, a post where you kind of alluded to that like yeah. recently. So, I mean, uh, 10 years or so go by and we're still good friends, but I just knew that I couldn't work with, with him. Yeah. Yeah. Jake's what a mind he's like doesn't forget anything he's like an elephant he'll remember what photo was on page 10 of february 1994 like just an example he just know knows it all in the magazine encyclopedia yeah yeah so what yeah it's a kind of an obvious question given what's gone on with transwell recently obviously no, no longer being here how do you look at that as somebody who's been immersed in magazines like your whole it's, life it's sad but it's i guess it's just where life in the world world is going it's just um it's a digital world and less and less of the youth are picking up magazines these days they're yeah. really just all about scrolling on on digital platforms yeah and do you, do you think so, we skateboarding's lost something from that yeah i mean there's a tangible a tangible piece of um history that 
you and I and other kids would put on their walls in their bedrooms or their school lockers, what are kids putting on their walls nowadays? Yeah, I mean, that's are they printing out a photo off of Instagram? I don't know, but that having that magazine and sharing that magazine on the road with your buddies in the car and uh, I don't know, just commenting and liking. I don't know if that's the same thing. Do you think it's brought anything positive? I think so. I think, I think it's social media is still propelling progression in skateboarding and snowboarding and surfing. Yeah, because there's an argument it's that it's still put pushing more, everybody. They want to be hyped, and it's there's an argument it's put maybe a little bit more power back into the yeah. actual hands of the yeah. you know the, the skater, the surfer, the snowboarder, whatever like who can just put it out there right. and doesn't need the, the old the gatekeepers. Thing, the thing I really don't like about social media is there's this sense of everything is free. So yeah, randomly or often I'll see my photos uncredited. Someone's just using it. I think I saw like someone was using that shot of yours on a T-shirt, right? Yeah, the photo of Jake. Yeah, like that, the, the, I was, I had to tell them like, please take that down. Yeah, I mean, and this was not a skate brand; it was just a T-shirt brand. And then they just capitalized on it because yeah, what happened? Like, you're going to capitalize on a guy's death? Yeah, like, come on, that's bullshit. Yeah. So it's just the wild, wild west out there where someone just feels they can grab something and and own it or feel like they have you know some entitlement to it. Yeah. Yeah, as so, a creative, I so mean, I'm, I'm protective of that as a as a photographer. Just well, you know, you've got this body of work that's yeah. got value, hasn't it? And I get you know DMs like put out you know some of your old stuff, and it's a lot of work to scan and post something on Instagram. It's like at least 15 minutes of work from grabbing it out of my archive, scanning and putting it onto the internet. And where's the archive? I don't want to just give it away. Half of it is at Thrasher, and half is at my house. Is it? Yeah. So mo- most of the comps and things are at Thrasher, and I have s- the stuff that I really value. Yeah. And Tony Vitello and, and Gwen Vitello know that they have full access to it. But, yeah. Um, I feel better about having my archive in my hands. Yeah, but Because, for example, I go to Thrasher now, and I don't know anybody there. They're all younger people and they don't know my history or yeah. what I've done to help work and build that brand. Yeah. You know, so it's better that I hold on to it. And if Tony needs something, yeah, then you he'll can usually text me and say, Hey, do you have a photo of uh Chris Sand or Jehobel or yeah. And I'll send it over to him. Yeah. So, so you moved to Portland, <clears throat> you said th- 13 years ago. Yeah. So what, you know, what, why'd you leave San Francisco? Um, for one, San Francisco was growing tremendously with the, you know, dot com, web development, uh, Facebook, all that. The digital platforms were uh, driving up property values, and and it was all good. But we just we felt like San Francisco was changing rapidly. Yeah. And me and my wife decided to go up to Oregon because I was already working in marketing for Adidas skateboarding. Yeah, sure. So, um, Adidas wanted me up here. They wanted yeah. me close to close to the office instead of flying up every two weeks. So we, we took a road trip up here in the summer, went up the coast and went down uh, the high desert back home to San Francisco. And we got back home. We, we definitely decided we wanted to get out of San Francisco. And did you spend a lot of time in Portland over the years? Just, yeah, prior. Just, just prior. skateboarding. Yeah, I'd come up and skate Burnside, yeah. do a couple of road trips up here. So I was very familiar with it, but I want to make sure my wife was cool with Portland and yeah. she was yeah 
so we we made the decision to move and we got up here nice and yeah that was before portland became what you're seeing out these windows right now so you've seen a you big could see across the river from here you've seen a big change <laughs> i've seen lots of changes yeah here. yeah especially in the last five years right yeah yeah and how's that been it's tough um now we have traffic and lines for different things but it's still a small town and the airport's really efficient and you get seasons here yeah san francisco didn't get seasons i mean it reminds so me of the uk in that sense quite a lot you know you've got like really distinct seasons like there's a, the music culture here like yep. there's the coffee it, beer it, yeah it's, it's got like here. a particular feel right that, yeah. that i've been hearing that a lot actually from from people that we've spoke to since you've been here and doing these interviews there's a lot of that like kind of got a bit sick of the socal culture and right you know why to get something yeah. obviously San Francisco no, it's nice SoCal, to have hot hot <clears throat> summers here and cold winters and i'm not far from the mountain it's one yeah. hour to go snowboard or camp yeah yeah oceans hour and a half it, it's it's a great place to be yeah yeah um and it seems like the influx of new portlanders has kind of slowed down a bit so that's kind of nice We'll see where it goes, but um, yeah. we have no plans in moving back to San Francisco. We're we're here. Yeah, yeah. All right, I got one more question. Sure, it's quite an obvious one, but um, you got to pick one shot to save from the archive. Oh, what would it be? Man, you might need a little bit of time for that, right? Everybody's going to think I'm going to say Gons at Alcatraz, right? But I don't know, man. Like. <laughs> Uh, my mind is racing through <laughs> images right now like just the whole catalog of images there must be one that's leaping out though right yeah there's definitely a few you can have alright you can have more than one give us a couple definitely Wade Spire at um, Marseille cover shot it's one of my favorites um, Chris Sen alling down the hill the, like the classic yeah yeah across the street down yeah the yeah that's one of my favorites there's a terry kidwell shot that i like that i shot of him at the worlds in breckenridge in 1988 i don't know if i know that shot yeah in in the pipe yeah i got I, it in my phone i'm gonna have to look at that <laughs> yeah man that was great yeah thank you so much no problem thanks for having me yeah no worries enjoy portland so there you go. That was my conversation with skateboarding legend Bryce. And I hope you'll agree that was a rollicking, highly entertaining journey through skate history told by one of the integral witnesses to every key moment and development in skateboarding. If you want to find out more, the best you can do is head over to his Instagram, really, where he regularly posts stuff from his immense archive. He's got a couple, actually, but the best ones to check out are at Bryce Knights and at Original BK. So I hope you enjoyed the episode. If you did, then, you know, give it a share on your social channels so we can get as many ears on it as possible. And if this is your first time listening, you might also want to check out some of the back catalogue for some of my other skate episodes. I've got full interviews and show notes with people like Steve Douglas, Jamie Thomas, Cara Beth Burnside, John Rattray, Don Brown and loads more. So yeah, plenty of new year listening for you to dig into there. Speaking of which, how's everyone doing? So I'm recording this intro on December the 30th, 2019, the penultimate day of the decade, 10 days into the festive period. I don't mind admitting 
and I've said this before, my liver feels like it's about to turn into pate from all the consumption. Every year I say I'm going to take it steady. Every year I end up with a severe case of orthorexia and or first world problems. Um, only time I got away with it was when I took the rather drastic step of heading to Sydney for a month a couple of years ago. But, you know, it's a good time, but definitely ready for the new year. Not least because I've got a trip to Japan happening in two weeks time. I've got four days in Tokyo, actually. So if anyone's got any ideas, let me know what they reckon I should be doing. I'm going to do a few podcasts while I'm there, but not that many as I'm supposed to be on holiday, really. So yeah, end of the year. And like I say, end of the decade, big thank you to everybody who supported my little show during its three-year lifespan. Fair to say it's already grown into something much bigger than I ever expected it to. And I'm forever grateful that so many people from all over the world are tuning in each week to hear me talk shy and interview different people from our little world. I really am very grateful. So thank you if you've listened, been in touch, supported or anything else really. Um, all right that's it gotta go got one more piss up to attend back next week with more of the same um, until then nice one <laughs>